Welcome to the Christian History Podcast. Given that this is Christmas week, I've decided to take a break from the ongoing progression through the litany of Old Testament characters, places, and things, instead focusing on something a little more seasonal. In this case, the Magi, wise men, travelers from the East. This has become an annual tradition and allows a little bit of a break, reducing the work required from the usual by about half. I first started this holiday tradition in 2016, the first year of the podcast, when late December found me in the middle of the history of Sodom and Gomorrah. Of all the stories in the Old Testament, nothing is really further from the New Testament theme of grace and redemption than the literal fire and brimstone of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so, this annual tradition began. Sometime in the future, when the historical chronology of the Bible warrants it, I'll work this episode into its proper sequence. But, if you download this edition when it's released, you know that this week I've skipped ahead over a thousand years. I don't know if that qualifies as a proper introduction, but regardless, let's get started. Who were the wise men? Of all the characters in the Nativity story, the three wise men are by far the most fun, to a scene that would otherwise seem stark and downright gloomy, considering a hazardous birth, a cranky innkeeper, a dirty stable, and not to forget uncivilized shepherds. The three wise men add an element of sparkle, mystery, and majesty. They hearken of something bigger yet to come. At the time, they had to seem well out of place. It's no wonder that many young actors in their school, or more likely church plays, when offered the choice between the principal characters of Mary or Joseph and the roles of the prestigious visitors, opt for the velvet robes, the gold foil turbans, and the paper boxes with glue-affixed jewels. These unexpected visitors to the manger always look splendid and remarkably fresh following such a long journey. However they looked, there is one lingering question. Who were they? More specifically, were these figures magi or kings? And were they from Tarsus, Shaba, Sheba, or possibly locations further east, or further somewhere? To answer this question, we have to consider Solomon, reputed to be the wisest man who ever lived. Could he have also have been a prophet? In Psalm 72, it was written, maybe by Solomon, May the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him gifts. The name Tarshish occurs in the Old Testament with several uncertain meanings, most frequently as a place, possibly a large city or region far across the sea from the land of Israel and Phoenicia. Tarshish was said to have supplied vast quantities of important metals to Israel and parts nearby. And not to forget gold is an important metal, as well as one of the three gifts. The same place name, Tarshish, occurs in Akkadian and Phoenician inscriptions, indicated that it was a real place, but the actual location was lost in history. Part of its importance stems from a mention in Ezekiel 27 that points to it as a source of King Solomon's great wealth and metals, 
specifically silver, but also gold, tin, and iron. All of this in the Iron Age that was upon Solomon. Isaiah chapter 23 says that the metals were reportedly obtained in partnership with King Haram of the Phoenician city of Tyre and via Tarshish registered ships. However, Solomon's temple was destroyed by the Babylonians and with it the archaeological evidence of any such economic relationship. But the existence of Tarshish in the western Mediterranean along with any Phoenician presence in the western Mediterranean before 800 BC, has been questioned by some more recent researchers, owing to the lack of evidence. But that doesn't mean it didn't exist. The Septuagint, Vulgate, and the Targum of Jonathan consider Tarshish and Carthage to be one and the same. Maybe. Other biblical commentators do what others do and as early as the 17th century A.D., read it as Tartasos in ancient Hispania, near modern-day Seville, Spain. That's a bit distant, and not from the east, unless you take the long way, the really long way. Either way, none of these locations are east of Bethlehem, and the actual location may have been lost forever. Next in Psalms was Sheba which I touched on many episodes ago, meaning in the first year of the podcast. Most researchers consider Sheba to be the same as the ancient civilization of Saba, in the south of the Arabian Peninsula, but local traditions in many countries think it's elsewhere. The most well-known mention of Sheba is the story of the Queen of Sheba from 1 Kings chapter 10. She traveled to Jerusalem to speak with King Solomon, arriving in a large caravan with precious stones, spices, and gold. Now, it's important to note that this lid could include all of the three gifts brought by the wise men. The apocryphal Christian Arabic text, known as the Book of the Rolls, considered part of Clementine literature, and also the Syriac Cave of Treasures, Mention a tradition that after being founded by the children of Saba, a son of King Joktan, Sheba had a succession of some 60 female rulers up until the time of Solomon. Josephus, in his Antiquity of the Jews, described a place called Saba as a walled royal city of Ethiopia that Cambyses II renamed Mayo. He wrote that it was encircled by the Nile as well as two other rivers, the Astapova and the Estaboris. These rivers offer protection from both foreign armies and river floods. According to Josephus, it was the conquering of Saba that brought great fame to a young Egyptian prince, a certain prince named Moses. But neither Arabia nor Ethiopia are east of Bethlehem. And there's a problem with the Nile and two other rivers encircling a city or region. Though the Great River does make an S-shaped turn in what's today the modern country of Sudan, near the Egyptian border. Last in Solomon's list is Saba. Now, first consider that spelling of Saba and Seba are different in only one letter, at least in English, so they could be one and the same. But if you stick with the literal, in that they are two different places, well, 
little is known about Seba, except that according to the Table of Nations, one of Cush's sons had the same name. Oh, and there is a dialect of the Bantu language in the nation of Congo that is called Seba. But as far as I can tell, that may be merely a coincidence. That, and that the Greek writers of the New Testament and the Hebrew writers of the Old likely knew nothing of the language Bantu. Then, and not from Solomon, but from sheer geography and history, there is Parthia. This empire, at the time of the birth of Christ, was east of Bethlehem, in fact, less than 100 miles, or about 160 kilometers from the manger. The Parthians, which included Persians, were educated and noted scientists, and especially astronomers, and that leads us back to the wise men. The Gospel of Matthew is the only source for the three visitors, and he used the Greek word magoi, which signified wise men in general, more of an adjective than noun. Matthew recorded that it was a rising star that led them towards the baby. In fact, instead of paraphrasing, I'll just quote the entire passage from the New Revised Standard, beginning in Matthew chapter 2. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising, and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. To note, this quotation is derived from combining Micah 5 with 2 Samuel 5. Back in Matthew, then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word so that I may go and pay him my respect. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there, ahead of them, went the star that they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, pausing for a second, entering the house indicates some time had passed since Jesus' birth. More on that in a minute. The visitors saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. This passage makes me, at least, believe the men were astronomers, which is also what the early church imagined them to be. Even so, it is just as hard to say what type of heavenly phenomenon the wise men could have seen. It was possibly a supernova. One nova, 
albeit probably not bright enough to be considered a supernova, apparently did appear, bordering the constellations of Capricornus and Aquarius during the spring of 5 BC. But Chinese records, which describe this object, imply that it was apparently not very conspicuous at all, but still, probably noticeable enough for professional astronomers. It could have been the conjunction of Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars in the constellation of Pisces that occurred on February 25th, 6 BC, or possibly a comet, since extra-biblical sources claim the star's beams were often said to stream and wave like a bird flying. But in the Greek and Roman world, comets foreshadowed deaths or disasters, not births. However, it is nearly certain that the Magi were neither Greek nor Roman, and visitors from the East can form their own interpretations. They had been instructed, according to John Chrysostom, a 4th century priest and scholar, that one particularly bright star would announce the coming of a child. Apparently, the Magi found in Matthew knew it was a king's star. If our only sources of information to who were the wise men were stories, songs, and movies, we'd have many misconceptions of the Magi. Fortunately, the Bible gives us some answers to the question. First, though, let's work through some of the misconceptions. The first is that there were three wise men. It's true that the Bible names three gifts. Second century artwork portrays two to four magi, and medieval artists depict up to twelve. In fact, in early Christianity, especially the Syriac churches, the magi often numbered twelve, but Matthew does not tell us the exact number. The next misconception is that they were kings. You may be familiar with the Christmas carol, We Three Kings. While it is true that the nature of their gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, suggests wealth, but there is no mention in the biblical text that they were kings. They were probably astronomers from Persia. In addition to being skilled in the science of the heavens and stars, they were also probably extremely knowledgeable in philosophy, natural science, and medicine. There's also the belief that they were named Gaspar, Melchior, and Balthasar. But in fact, these names were popularized by Amal and the Night Visitors, a one-act opera from the 1950s. The names themselves actually were originally found in a 7th century manuscript, seven centuries too late. In the end, Matthew doesn't tell us their names either. Next is that they rode camels. Once again, Matthew is silent on their mode of transportation. I think the only thing for certain is that they did not ride flying carpets. Then there is the problem of direction. Another common misconception is that the star they saw was in the east. Again, there is a familiar song, Star of the East. Matthew says that the wise men were in the east when they saw the star. And if they were from the east, then the star was in the west. And then, probably the biggest misunderstanding of them all, that they found Jesus in the manger. Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, and of course baby Jesus were also there, all on Christmas Day. But Matthew doesn't even mention a manger, 
in the manger isn't what many think it is. He was likely born in a cave outside of Bethlehem. And before you write in, a manger is a feeding trough for animals. So the manger was his bed, not the building. By now, you should know that caves were not unknown to the people of the region. Luke, in chapter 2, states that the shepherds were the only ones to visit the manger on Christmas Day. But Luke doesn't mention the Magi. Instead, the Magi found him in a house. We can, though, from the passages in the two books, Luke and Matthew, piece together an approximate timeline. First, Jesus was born. Then, an angel appears to the shepherds, who then visit the cave, seeing the baby in a feeding trough. By the way, the shepherd's sign was the manger, not the star. Eight days later, Jesus is circumcised, and six weeks after that, Jesus was consecrated in the temple. Joseph, Mary, and Jesus go back to Bethlehem and live in a house, Joseph being a carpenter and all. And finally, the wise men arrive. Given this order of events, the wise men probably arrived somewhere between six months and two years after Jesus was born. Why up to two years? Herod wanted to know when the baby was born, so he inquired exactly when the star appeared. From the information he learned from the wise men, he ordered the killing of all baby boys up to two years old. In the end, though, there are many things we don't know about them. But we do know one thing. They were searching diligently for the one they had considered to be born the king of the Jews. And they themselves probably weren't even Jewish, coming to pay their respects and possibly garner favor from a future leader, even if he was still a baby and living in an average house. These men were Gentiles. They probably did not have the Hebrew scriptures, yet they set out on a long, perilous journey to honor a baby from a different religion. Then again, being the educated men they were, and also knowing many of the Hebrew scriptures had made it to Persia during the exile period, maybe they did have writing foretelling of the coming king, and believed it enough to make a dangerous trip bringing valuable gifts. They left their homelands and began a journey across the desert to search for a king without knowing when or where the journey would end. They then found a king, but it was the wrong one, Herod, and had the courage to announce to him that he was to be displaced. Upon hearing this, everyone knew that Herod could have these men executed. After all, in the recent past, Herod had executed three of his own sons and an untold number of rabbis. It would have been nothing to him to murder these few foreigners. Instead, as found in extra-biblical sources, Herod took them in and invited them to dine. He then attempted to co-opt the Magi to spy on the child and report back. And they were happy to oblige. At least, they made Herod believe that they were. Maybe this is how they escaped execution. In the end, a dream intervened and warned them not to go back. They were told to return by another way, starless this time, with no God-assisted steering. It's thought they took up to two laborious years to make it back, 
seeking directions from everyone en route. And so you see, wrote John Hildesheim, the difference between divine and human operations and the lack of GPS. And about these three gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, why these? Gold is easy. It was valuable then, just as it is today. It's also a gift befitting a king. Frankincense, though, has lost its value and meaning over time. Then, it was a costly perfume, perhaps symbolic of the incense burnt by priests in the temple. And myrrh, well, that was possibly a bit of foreshadowing. At the time, myrrh was an embalming substance, perhaps in reference to the sacrifice Jesus would make some 30 years later. That's the one that sticks with you. In Mark 15, just after Jesus was brought to Golgotha, and just before he was crucified, he was offered wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Before I move on, one thing to note. It was the only time in history that a single gift could serve as both a birthday gift and a Christmas gift. Mary and Joseph, of course, were a bit off guard. This was quite a baby shower, and not really the practical gifts they needed, and probably were not expecting. And one more curious factoid. In Cologne, Germany, and in probably one of the most beautiful Gothic cathedrals in the world, a church that took over 600 years to build was seriously damaged in World War II and taking 11 years after that to rebuild again. In this cathedral, behind the altar, sits what is known as the Shrine of the Three Kings. Forget for a minute that it's misnamed and focus on something else. And that is that the gilded and decorated triple sarcophagus reportedly contains the bones of the wise men. Several years ago, well, now really over a decade, I was in Cologne for a single day of meetings. I had a Sunday to kill, so I climbed the stairs of one of the spires and attended the evening service. Before that service, though, I chanced upon the relic, completely unexpected. Was the dust in the sarcophagus their last remains? I'll never know. But if it was, if it is, the world, and history, just got a little smaller and much more real. Maybe at some point in the far-off future, I'll cover the history of that cathedral and the sarcophagus, too. Just not today. Next week will be the continuation of the history of the Judge Sampson. Join me then. You don't want to miss it. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so it's easier to find later. If you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released. Also, please go to iTunes and give the podcast a positive review. And to everyone, thanks for listening and have a great week and a Merry Christmas.